Welcome to the Creative Review Podcast. I'm Eliza Williams, and for today's show, I'm joined by my lovely colleagues at CR, Patrick Burgoyne. Hi. And Rachel Stephen. Hello. We're going to talk about some of the topics that have been coming up in the office this week, which this time include television branding and failure. Uh, but perhaps we'll kick off with TV branding. Last week, I uh, saw the introduction of two quite major rebrands, one day after another, uh, from BBC Two and Channel Four. Uh, BBC Two's was the first big change in over 20 years and saw the kind of end of the cute, fluffy two characters that we've been used to over the decades, uh, which were replaced by a sort of more, I don't know, abstract design, which featured around the curve of the two. And then for Channel 4, the focus was on unifying the Channel 4 brand. So it was bringing the digital channels, which have all had very disparate branding previously, under a kind of umbrella, which was mainly centred around the use of the classic Lambinen 4, the kind of 2D 4, which has been part of the recent new branding for Channel 4, but not maybe as dominant as it is here. So that's set the scene. I'm going to ask Pat and Rachel what they thought of it. Pat, you first. Well, I think having now had the benefit of seeing the BBC Two work actually out in the wild on TV, uh, interrupting programmes when I wasn't necessarily expecting it, um, it is impactful. I think some of the executions so far are really beautiful and elegant, and I think um, they've obviously worked with some really talented animators and directors, and they've set something up that allows them to do that um, in the future. So it's a relatively simple idea that ties everything together and I imagine would give their collaborators a lot of scope to play around mm. with that. Um, you made so that sound like you didn't necessarily like it initially though. I think it's really difficult to tell. I mean inevitably with these things, especially when the BBC is concerned, they tend to be very controlling about the way things are uh, released out into the world and you can't really see that much of it um, beforehand. And I do think it's very much about the context of this stuff. You know, you need to be actually watching TV and then see it between the programmes and, and feel the impact it has on you. Because if you just watch them um, as a YouTube clip or something out of context, mm -hmm. you're never really getting the same sense of them as, as, as when they appear on TV. So I feel like from that aspect, they certainly feel different. They certainly feel elegant. It's a big move away from, um, I mean, you were mentioning about um, the the two character and how that was first introduced and, and that was another Lambie Nen project obviously yeah it was yeah. Um, which had great personality and great fun and then it evolved into the more recent work where you had a lot of the items that were shot through the the two um, which which used it as a framing device which to my mind were kind of a bit less distinctive and I suppose where this falls down in some ways is it's it's not as fun or as quirky. Um, but maybe that's to do with what they're trying to say about BBC Two today. Maybe they're trying to move the channel forward in that direction. I don't think it was very clear when um, the new identity was launched what exactly they were hoping to do with the channel that this was Yeah, expressing. I mean, there was a piece in The Guardian that I read about that side of it, which uh, was more saying that they essentially want to kind of refresh the channel generally that I think the average age of the viewer is over 60 and I guess like many channels there's a kind of obvious desire to kind of reach younger audiences but maybe have a bit more personality I feel like when I think about it I think I don't quite know what a BBC Two show quite is at the moment would you say that Rach? Yeah I think um, I also thought the items looked really nice I thought there was a really nice range of visual approaches but it kind of left me thinking so what does BBC Two want 
to say about itself going forward. And obviously that has to be expressed in a range of ways and not just through those idents. But I think BBC is perhaps in this kind of strange middle ground where when we think of big budget BBC drama, we think of BBC One. And when we think of factual programming and education, we probably think first of BBC Four. Um, and so I guess maybe from what the BBC said um, in the article in The Guardian, it sounds like they are very much kind of their strategy is focused on, on drama. And I think they're making an adaptation of Luminaries, um, working with Charlie Brooker, which all sounds really, really great. But one thing I would be interested to see is kind of how they manage to promote those shows in a way that's going to bring in those new younger audiences. Because if you look at the way Netflix, for example, promotes its content across social media, I mean, obviously they must be working with, with huge budgets, um, but they have these really cinematic trailers, they're putting out kind of memes on social media, they're picking yeah. out stills of kind of production design and costume design, and you kind of get this much stronger sense of, of identity, but also it's it's kind of very led by the shows, and and I guess that's how a lot of people are coming to channels now. I mean, I don't watch... Uh, it's very rarely that I'll flick through telly these days. I'll watch one show at a time and I'll binge watch that. Yeah, I think there's a sense that people talk about shows now rather than did you watch Channel 4 last night or whatever. And I mean, certainly when I spoke to I spoke to Alice Tonge at 4Creative, um, who was part of the team or led the team that did the ta- Channel 4 change. And she said that they're very conscious of that. And I almost felt like what she was saying with Channel 4's work was that they wanted to actually bring all these different very well respected entities they have I mean some perhaps more respected than others but film four especially uh more for maybe slightly less but there were sort of areas that they want to bring them all together so that people think of channel four and perhaps that's to your point that maybe it's when you see it in a different setting or you kind of catch a show that you think more of four rather than of film four I mean she used the example of the uh the film Three Billboards, uh, which was a film for production and uh, obviously hugely successful film, but you don't necessarily think of Channel 4 when you see it. So they obviously want a little bit of that magic to kind of reach across the whole channel. But it's very difficult. I mean, you saying you watched BBC Two and saw them in the wild. Uh, You know, I don't... How often does that necessarily happen now to your point about individual shows? Well, I was actually watching a show on BBC Two, but I was watching it via the iPlayer. So, you know, you could run the iPlayer and just let it run from programme to programme. And yeah. it's almost like watching broadcast TV. I suppose that's another aspect of this stuff now, which is that these new platforms like the iPlayer, like um, Channel 4's equivalent and, and, and Netflix, they're almost, particularly with iPlayer, I think, becoming a, a, a brand in their own right that in some ways maybe supersedes the sort of channel brands or the way in which broadcast has been organised in the past. So are people in the future going to feel more of an affinity with iPlayer yeah. and with BBC Two, for example, um, particularly when it comes to international audiences as well? And at the moment, I don't know whether the BBC has kind of resolved that or whether it's internally really difficult for them, but they still do seem to be thinking in, in channel terms. Yes, although I guess there's an advantage. Obviously, BBC Three is all on the iPlayer and there is an advantage to that the sort of distinction of where you'll find your content that suits you because BBC Three isn't necessarily for me although some things are uh, but I suppose you might still have your favourite area but it does seem quite a leap to think of how would they organise the iPlayer without it being the channels that we're familiar with yeah but maybe that's to come I thought the other interesting um, point that Alice was making in the interview on that we've got on the website was well, two things actually. One is the way in which the approach has almost come full circle 
when in the early days of, of E4 and actually when Creative Review helped with um, Easting's programme to create a kind of identity for E4 that was supposed to be very distinct from the mother brand and the distance allowed them to do other things and that now the changing priorities in, in broadcast industry mean that they are actually having to try and bring them back to connect much more closely with the with the mother brand is really interesting and it's a great challenge I guess for creative people and designers to respond to something which has changed so much in, in such a short space of time. The other thing I thought was interesting was she made the point about how idents can be used not just to tell you what you're watching but why you're watching that channel um, and I'm not sure for me that the, the BBC Two ones really communicate that, they don't really tell me an awful lot about why I'm watching BBC Two and what it what it's all about. They yeah. seem more focused on capturing the kind of mood of different types of content I guess and I, I'm not 100% sure because I haven't seen them on BBC Two but it looks like there's kind of certain ones that might suit you know, a documentary versus a, a drama but you're right that I think that was definitely the thing that I took from it was I wasn't sure if I hadn't watched BBC Two in a long time or I, or I wasn't familiar with it why I should then go on and watch as a result of kind of seeing those idents. Yes and I I felt some of the BBC Two, two work felt slightly familiar I mean it felt slightly Channel 4 at times and I think and then by return the Channel 4 thing of them trying to umbrella them all at times also felt quite awkward and I can, you could, I could, felt you could see the practical problem they faced in the work that was created in that they, in a way, probably needed to do a total rebound of all of them. <laughs> but obviously that's a huge task and, they, and a lot would have been lost because, say, the film foregrounding, for example, is so elegant and beautiful and distinctive. I mean, what do you lose if you change that? But it did sometimes feel slightly shoehorned in the four that comes yeah, I think the the more for maybe in, in particular was yeah. an example of that, but I, I completely agree. I think it they were in a very difficult position. You could create a whole new system that is built with the idea of bringing them all under one umbrella brand, but it's very much designed with kind of today's branding needs in mind, or you could kind of continue doing it. And I think the problem is if, if you kind of work back to, to old aspects of the identity and try and kind of fit them in with the new one, it's it's very hard not to end up with something that feels like a kind of bit of a a mashup of old and new. I do like the fact that they've they've stuck with the original Lambinen for when you know so many other brands just jettison their heritage quite kind of. Yeah, weird. although there's a fashion for a bit of heritage around. Yeah, isn't yeah. It? But, yeah. But, I, but I I think you know what Rachel's saying does really highlight one of the big problems with with uh, branding when the world moves on and so many times now when when rebrands are released and and people will say oh there's nothing wrong with the last one why did they have to change. I think that really illustrates that actually there's, there are frequently problems with the old one that until you actually work on it and get to grips with it, you don't really appreciate. Yes, indeed. Very good. Well, let's leave that one there and, and shift direction entirely uh, into the complex subject of failure, which has been on our minds this week because we did a series of articles on the website where we talk to um, creative leaders, people who've been on our Creative Leaders 50 list, which is a list we produce each year of industry people who we think are really moving the creative industries forwards and occasionally we ask them to talk about certain themes and this week it was five there were five leaders we talked to about the subject of failure and we asked them all the same questions really which were around how they've managed failure in their own lives and how they help others and there was quite a wide variety of answers really um pat maybe you could sort of sum up because we were talking about this earlier before the podcast started about there were sort of two distinct camps perhaps 
Yeah, I think what was interesting is the way it's highlighted, um, if you like, at the sort of newer way in which work is being made, which comes out of the software process, the um, collaborative um, test, prototype, learn from the users, move on, continually iterate, yeah. versus, if you like, a, a slightly older um, idea about creativity driven by the, the auteur and the big idea where there's this great um, Ta-da. Ta-da moment <laughs> of genius, which is beautiful and polished and finished. Yeah. Um, and those two philosophies, I feel, in lots of ways, are kind of bumping up against each other in, in the creative industries at the moment. Yeah. Do you, what resonated with you, Rach? Um, well, I really liked Adrian Shaughnessy's um, analysis, uh, anecdote about science. Um, and he said, as creative people, we can learn from the way science has advanced. I'm fascinated by scientific experiments that end in failure because instead of seeing them as a disaster, scientists view failed experiments as part of the discovery process. They might have discovered that a pharmaceutical experiment resulted in an outcome that had devastating side effects, but instead of seeing that as a failure, they chalk it up as a success. Why? Because they've discovered something that wasn't known before. Um, And I think this is a really interesting point to make because I was talking to someone recently who was working on a branding project for a museum a couple of years ago, and about 80% of the way through the project and very close to deadline, they decided to scrap the whole thing and start again. Um, And the, the... the, the end project yeah I mean it was it was a brave decision but they talked about it with the studio and I think everyone felt that their heart wasn't in it and that there was just something that wasn't quite working so they went for a different idea it seemed to work out pretty well um but it kind of goes back to the idea of how difficult it is to quantify for example how long it takes to to get to a great idea and I think as teams get busier and busier and, and workloads become more intense and people start to feel kind of more and more stretched I think we're really in danger of kind of that part of the process getting squeezed out that whole discovery phase that Adrian talks about where you know you you have to explore an idea and it might not work but you take what you've learned from that and you apply it to something else and you look and you say okay well you know at least we we know this thing from from this project and let's apply it to something else and and I think that's maybe becoming less and less a part of the creative process now because people are so up against it you almost want to go for an idea that you know will work yeah, and yet within the digital community, it seems that that's a very accepted approach and it's very accepted that you'll kind of put your your kind of work out there as you're doing it and you'll get feedback. And I mean, I really felt when I read, it was both uh, Tim Melbourne from Made by Many and Lauren Curry from Noble, both sort of talked in a similar way about this idea of prototyping as you go and making things smaller as you go so you don't sort of set yourself up for quite such a big fall if the thing you're creating doesn't come to fruition, which would make it harder, to your point, to stop halfway through. Um, I really felt like that's that actually the mentality of that would be a really good thing to apply generally to the way people work, because it feels nowadays that there's so much uncertainty and unknowns, and there's so much re- requirement for experimentation. I mean, our last podcast was about the retail industry, and it, you know, it was so obvious that that's an industry that's desperate for experimentation and kind of creative approaches and a little bit of risk taking, but maybe not so much risk taking that you're going to lose the whole business by doing it. Mm. Um, but it feels like if that kind of mentality could be brought into lots of industries, there might be more chance of things ha- exciting things happening, but also people having a bit more of a sense of success along the way because I feel one of the challenges that face the modern kind of industries as well is 
is trying to work out how you measure success and how you get a sense of satisfaction because I mean this is something we talk about in journalism a lot because there's a constant need to produce and you it's hard to kind of look back in the way you might do when you just did a print mag and say oh we've done this thing let's all go for a pint because the next story is is always there and I think that's not just a media issue it's a kind of issue across a lot of things. Yeah and we've talked about that quite a lot in the creative leaders events that we run at Creative Review and I think one of the things that comes up from the the side of those people who are working on services or um, digital products or digital uh, or software based things is they're putting in some kinds of uh, milestones or something where you can say if we reach this then that is a success and we can celebrate that success even though it may be part of a service which is in some ways never ending is always going to be improved and is always going to be tweaked and so on going forward but as long as you can put some kind of points in place along the journey then people can get some of that um, feeling of, of, of achievement because I think you're absolutely right otherwise it is just kind of it's it's infinite and and you never have those milestones that you can you can you can really sort of celebrate as a as a group um, yeah because it's really I mean I feel it's when you think about it it's also just across everything that you know you could have a number one record one day but the kind of ad you know the old adage that you you know you're only as good as your last hit or whatever feels so much the case now that you know you can have a brilliant book and and yet somehow if you're not constantly there it's it's easy to sort of feel like you you have faded away somehow which I don't know just if that feels the kind of again doesn't feel conducive to good creative thinking because it's there's so much pressure yeah I think I think it's to do with the it's all to do with the fact that, that increasingly in our world we're, we're leaving the the physical the material behind and mm. it's, it's 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 virtual it's virtual in the way that we communicate with one another the services that we use are increasingly virtual the products are increasingly virtual um, whereas when you're talking about something physical inevitably there has to be there have to be fixed deadlines there has to be manufacture shipping launching a version that has to exist for a period of time before it's possible to launch another version it's a slower process generally isn't it yeah but it's also a process where the price of failure is that much higher if you think about if you're you know i I, recently i was watching for a piece that we're going to publish in the next issue of creative review the uh new dita rams documentary that, that gary huswitz directed and so he's rams is talking there about the process when he was walking, working at Braun and um, trying to refine a product, trying to, uh, yes, learn from the users and so on, but at some point you have to say, that's what I believe is going to be the product and you've got to pay for it to all the tooling and for all the manufacturing and so on and so forth. It's a massive investment and something oh. which could not sell. Yeah. So the, you talk about failure. I mean, that's, that's a massive price of failure, whereas if it's a new release of... Uh, Spotify or Instagram or something like that, the very next day you can release another version. You can fix some problems in it. You can get the new version out there. Yeah, although some of the people who talked to us did talk about uh, failures on the scale of the Rams thing, of sort of failures of offices being opened and not yeah. working and and of the Amazon phone that you know famously died to death. So there are still those big kind of moments, I suppose. But um, Rach, did you, there was also an Adrian's piece that I thought was interesting. There was about social media and the kind of baptism of fire that social media brings. I mean, do you think there's more with the social media age? There's more um, 
fear of failure for, because of that for brands and individuals? I definitely think so. And I think um, you were talking about this briefly before, but I think there's much more pressure because all of a sudden, what might have been a failure becomes an epic failure or a massive yeah. disaster. And, and it, it just, I think that fear is kind of compounded because people know that all of a sudden, everyone's going to start talking about that and, and people start sharing it and people start you know, commenting on it and it becomes a much bigger failure than it might have been if it was contained within that company or people chatted about it in conversation. And um, I think it's that, um, what you were saying about, it's almost like people have to be winning or they have to be losing mm. on social media. And we always want everything to kind of fall into one of those two categories. And generally people seem to love failure on social media and they seem to, to love kind of... It's a very harsh environment, I suppose, isn't it? It's a kind of... But then the scales always seem to also turn that... You know, eventually, if something gets battered so much, other people will kind of step up for it. And yeah, and I have noticed yeah. that, particularly when it comes to things like design work being being launched or, or or ads, that the people behind them are becoming a bit more confident about pushing back on that uh, and not just running into a panic because someone who may have very little relationship with that brand has been critical about it on Twitter. And I think some people are becoming a bit more self-confident about actually if this matters and the people that we really care about like this so long as they're happy with it we don't really care what the other 10 million people might have yeah maybe it defines a bit more what your intention is and just you know explain whereas design often has felt a little bit like it's a hidden world apart from obviously creative review and other magazines but it's often not something that's talked about in the mainstream so that's maybe a way of it happening Mm. And I guess, yeah, people are more familiar with that cycle of, you know, you release a new piece of work into the world, p- people might love it or hate it, someone might make a negative comment and everyone will kind of jump on that and start sharing it. But then, as you say, eventually that opinion might turn and you'll have people sticking up for it. So maybe we are a little bit less anxious about it because it's quite a familiar cycle now. Um, but I do think just by the nature of kind of social media, people are a little bit more nervous about failing out. Oh, you've got it, to be terrified if you're releasing a major new label <laughs> yeah. on Twitter or whatever. Ah. I guess the key is to, to not panic. Is to hold, hold <laughs> your or ground. Or just don't read any of the tweets. Yeah, exactly. Very good. All right, well, on that note, uh, we'll finish this week's podcast. Thank you very much for listening. You can read more about the subjects we talked about on uh, creativereview.co.uk. Thank you. Mm-hmm.